Hello and welcome once again to Warwick Podcast and the last of our interviews of this year's honorary graduates. Sat beside me today is a leading light in the idea of professionalism and patient-led care of medicine, Sir Donald Irvine. After qualifying from Newcastle Medical School in 1958, Sir Donald was a general practitioner for 35 years. In 1995, he was elected president of the General Medical Council, the first GP to hold this position. In this role, he was responsible for the development of good medical practice, which sets out the duties and responsibilities of every UK doctor and the standards which form the basic template for modern medical regulation and education. Sir Donald is also one of the driving forces behind Warwick Medical School. Today, he chairs the school's advisory board and is also a member of the strategy committee, and as far back as the 70s, he was looking into the prospects of establishing a school on this very site. Okay, so Donald, um, congratulations, yet another honorary degree to add to your collection. Um, how does this one make you feel in particular, considering your close ties with the university and the medical school? Well, this is a, this is a very uh, special occasion for me. I mean, I'm really delighted. Um, I've been chairman of the advisory board of the, uh, uh, of the medical school for the last about five years or so and seen the new medical school uh, take shape and, and get off the ground. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really quite thrilled with the way that the people here have made it all work. Uh, an outsider looking in, as it were, and uh, I've been very thrilled and very uh, proud of what uh, Warwick have uh, accomplished. So I'm very pleased to be honoured in this way and be associated with it. How and why did you first get involved with Warwick? Well, it really goes back quite a long way, um, into the 70s, when uh, the then Vice-Chancellor uh, and various powers that be of the time thought that they would like to um, have a medical school at what was still a quite new university. And, um, and I was asked at the time to join a group uh, to develop a proposal. All that went nowhere. The, the climate wasn't right. It was nothing to do with Warwick. It was the fact that you know, Britain thought it had enough doctors, and uh, so it, 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 it all went into the can, as it were. But I, I think probably um, the ambition to have a, a, a medical school was certainly very alive then. And then um, uh, my next uh, connection was with the, um, the late Professor Meg Stacy. Uh, she was the first female professor at Warwick. And um, she was a professor of medical sociology. And medical sociology was one of the sort of forming, formative influences on uh, shaping this university's approach to a new medical school. And I, she, she was one of the people, um, a group of sociologists, who uh, helped us in medicine see that there was another way of looking at um, the profession of medicine uh, from the patient's perspective rather than from the insider doctor's view. And um, so that was, that was a very important uh, friendship that I established and it certainly altered my view of, um, of doctoring. And then we decided, we, the General Medical Council and the government decided that there would actually have to be an expansion of medical schools and um, and so this one teamed up with Leicester and I came to see then as president how the new school was just getting off the ground 
And uh, I remember vividly a, a lunch I had here with um, another sociologist, professor of sociology, and that's um, Gillian Hunt. And I remember saying to myself, uh, as I departed from here, so they're going to make it. Um, because she and others were just so enthusiastic. Today, the school has established itself. It's been granted independent um, degree-giving status by the uh, GMC. It's uh, established a, a wonderful uh, um, record in a very short time in scientific research. Very good teaching. It, it is regarded as probably the best of the latest uh, set of new medical schools. So that's no, no mean accomplishment. So that's why, that's why I'm pretty proud to be associated yeah. with Warwick. <laughs> Obviously with these ties you have, medical school, you're a chair of the advisory board and a member of the strategy committee. Do you ever get to go a bit beyond that and actually meet with students and spend time with students at the medical school? Yes, I do. I mean, I've been quite active. Um, and uh, in uh, this story, I mean, this is the story of pre three powerful women, the two I've described, the two sociologists, but the other powerful woman who's had the most formative influence by virtue of being dean is the very, very uh, um, insightful appointment by the University of Yvonne Carter. And uh, I mean, they, they just, we just fell on our feet um, because she has been, you equate the success of the new medical school at Warwick with the name of Yvonne Carter. So through her, uh, I've been able to connect up with students and we've got out to a number of the hospitals, teaching hospitals, Walsgrave and um, uh, and, and others which take our students. We, I mean, we've been quite an active um, advisory committee in that sense. I think that's very important. But the students that I've met here, I have to say like many students elsewhere, are quite imbued uh, with all the qualities that you would wish to see in a doctor. Uh, I sometimes think when people say, gosh, do we select appropriately? There's nothing wrong with the young people coming forward. The real question is what we do subsequently to them. And I think there's a challenge for this school now. Now that its period of consolidation is past, it's got itself established, it's got its science base and its reputation, backed by the science of the university, it's a very important dimension. Uh, it has to consider what's going to be special about um, a Warwick medical graduate. So that's going to be not only clinical skill and clinical acumen uh, and um, the, uh, the research-mindedness that uh, underpins all that, but it's going to be what kind of human beings they are and whether they'll really care for their patients. And no medical schools in this country have quite grasped the fact that people are looking for perhaps an old-fashioned kind of doctor, somebody that they can really uh, relate to as well as give them the best of uh, science. So I think the, um, the challenge now is who will, who will be first? And uh, I think this university is very well placed to uh, take a high profile lead. I'd like to think that in 10 years time, people will be, if you ask about in this region, in Coventry and, and, and elsewhere, people will say, I'm, I have a Warwick doctor. It, that means that's a doctor I can trust without even having to think about it. Um, 
and incidentally other medical schools are asking how do we be like them? Um, do you think that initiatives in education in medicine could be applied beyond medicine into wider education? Yes, um, I think as a profession medicine has taken education seriously. Um, I mean some parts of it have been um, more serious than others. We've always been uh, good at turning students, making students into doctors and um, doing the specialist training that follows on from that. The big issue for medicine now is how you make sure that through the rest of a doctor's practicing life, 30 to 35 years, they really remain on, uh, on top peak performance. And that uh, can be done partly by regulation, but you never fix these things entirely by regulation. It, that provides a framework. Underneath that is what actually happens in terms of leadership by clinical teachers. The role model that they present to the outside world of, um, of a doctor that people would say, I, I put my hands in that person's uh, care without having to think about it. That's, that's, that's the key piece now. Um, do you think there is a, a high level of public trust in the, um, in the medical profession? Yes, there is. The surveys that are done consistently show that um, doctors in this country certainly still have a high reputation. But it, it, we have to be careful about that. There's more public scepticism uh, about the extent to which the profession collectively makes sure that everybody has a good doctor, not just that most people for most of the time have a good doctor. And I think part of the challenge which will fall to places like Warwick will be to show how in practical terms you achieve a much higher order of consistency. Just as the civil aviation industry had to show that um, you know, when you got on your holiday flight and took off for uh, distant parts, the one bit you could be sure of, that the pilot would know exactly what he was doing. Now, I think of the crash in the uh, Hudson River the other day, and everybody immediately leapt to the view, the conclusion, how lucky they all were and that it was down to the professionalism of the pilot. Now, it's that same order of professionalism and consistency that we've got to achieve in medicine. What role do you see for such things as new media and the internet in perhaps upholding that professionalism and accountability for professionalism in the future? Well, at the end of the day, it's patients who've got the illness um, and really have to make decisions about uh, their care. Uh, it's not following doctor's orders as, um, as, as it's used to commonly uh, be. And um, more and more people are becoming much more questioning, uh, more interested, and through the internet very, very much better informed about what the possibilities about diagnosis and treatment are. And some of my colleagues, I think only a minority, are still adjusting to the impact of the arrival of the internet and the fact that uh, any person, ill or not, can access the database of medicine directly. They don't have to go through a doctor. And that's transforming the relationship between doctor and patient. Now, I think that's for the better. Uh, and um, so part of the skill of 
tomorrow's doctors, will be in helping people work through what the treatment options are, particularly when there's more than one and the uh, effectiveness of treatments may be um, quite closely balanced. But at the end of the day, the patient's the person who's got the illness and they, they, they have to decide. That's not in any way in conflict with somebody who says, so what, do you, what would you do, doctor? You can help them by putting your own opinions into things, but making clear at the end of the day that it is their decision. And I think that that will lead to a, 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 a much, much better uh, relationship. I remember a colleague of mine who had been in uh, New Zealand and had come home with tummy upset, uh, putting it delicately, and uh, he went to his doctor and she couldn't fix it. And he saw a gastroenterologist and he couldn't fix it either. So he got himself on the internet and he went back to the doctor and said, I think I've got a condition called giardiasis, an infection. And these are the pills that I think would be necessary to do it. And she picked herself off the consulting room desk and uh, prescribed. And of course he got better. That's why he was telling me the story. And I said, so what did that do to your relationship with your doctor? I said, well, we're getting on famously. She's really interested now <laughs> in me and what, um, what I'm bringing to the consultation. And I said, has that meant that you have less trust in her? And he said, no, not in the slightest. Because of her reaction to this and the way that she's handled, I've got more trust in her. How close are we to the autonomous patient then? Do you think we've already we have sort of achieved that? Or do you think there's work yet to be done? There's a lot more work to be done. Um, I mean, this is this is a huge cultural change for, uh, for 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 medicine to have to work through. It's also quite a, a huge cultural change in which many patients find themselves. I mean, lots of, particularly more elderly people, um, don't want to have to make these decisions. So again, it comes back to how we train the doctor to be at his or her most helpful best in helping people sort their problems through and giving them the information they need, um, but helping them uh, uh, reach um, conclusions that they're going to be comfortable with because they're going to have to live with them. And what do you think are the biggest challenges to education in the medical profession today? I think the biggest challenge is to rediscover what uh, some of the teachers in an earlier century, the uh, William Oslers of this world who were great leaders in the late uh, 19th century, knew anyway. And, and that is the power of the um, clinical teacher as a role model. Whatever is handed out and is given out in lectures and uh, discussions and seminars and so on, Students are very, very influenced by what they see their teachers do, not what their teachers say. Uh, and um, I've always felt throughout my clinical life, and it's been reinforced through my clinical life, that um, what kind of doctor you are is going to have perhaps the most formative influence at the end of the day on how students will see things. It's a very, very powerful thing. And we have to learn to harness that now. And we haven't quite done that in the context of modern medical education and, and practice. But people know how to do this. 
It's a matter of applying ourselves, changing some attitudes, and, um, and, and moving forward. And with the team that Yvonne has built up here, um, this medical school is very well placed to exploit, and in a very positive way, the attributes of the doctor of the 21st century. So Donald, thank you very much. <laughs>